As we've been learning, Jeremiah had a tough job. He was called by God to deliver an unpopular message to an ungrateful and an unrepentant people. And when his pleadings to turn to God went unheeded, God had him pronounce judgment on these people. It made him an object of intense persecution. Jeremiah made huge personal sacrifices with very few tangible results. His stand for God often required him to stand alone. On earth, Jeremiah's ministry received no praise. He warranted no recognition. You know, it's hard to imagine God giving a man a more difficult assignment than he gave to the prophet Jeremiah. If God reserves his most demanding task for his strongest and most spiritual servants, then Jeremiah, indeed, ranks above them all. This evening, we want to continue our study through the diary of this important prophet. Again, you can entitle tonight's message, Jeremiah's Journal. He gets very personal, and he unveils some personal thoughts and struggles that he had. Chapter 13 begins, Thus says the Lord to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash, and put it around your waist, but do not put it in the water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord, and put it around my waist. Now it's often said a picture is better than a thousand words. And in the Old Testament, at times, God speaks to His people through pictures or through object lessons. Call them divine dramas, spiritual skits, if you will. He especially uses this technique when people turn a deaf ear to conventional methods. At times, God would command a prophet to act out a living parable. It became a visual aid to awaken God's people to their condition. Sometimes God used the strangest of behaviors to teach spiritual lessons. You remember Isaiah? Oh, what a command. He was told to walk naked and barefoot for three years as a sign of judgment against Egypt and Ethiopia. I guess you could say he spoke to the nation the bare facts. Gave them the naked truth. Ezekiel, too, was called by God to lie on his side for a lengthy time. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. Wow, what an illustration. He was demonstrating God's attitude toward his own people. And here Jeremiah is told to procure a linen sash. Now this was a sacred sash. This was a priestly undergarment. It was part of the attire worn by the priest. This wasn't a pair of Wrangler jeans or Dickies overalls. This was not something rugged and rough. This sash was made of linen. It was a delicate garment. Call it intimate apparel. This sash represented the intimacy and the fellowship that the nation of Judah had enjoyed with God. Notice verse 3. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. The caravans from Jerusalem westward to Babylon were commonplace. And apparently Jeremiah joined one of these convoys. He made the 300-mile trip to the banks of the Euphrates River. And it was there that he hid the sash under a rock just as God had told him. Remember the Euphrates River was the river of Babylon. 
Babel was the seat and the center of all idolatry. It had been the headquarters of Satan, even from the time of Nimrod. You can read about him in Genesis 11. In fact, even in the future, this Babylon plays a role. In Revelation 9, the sixth trumpet will blast, and a voice will sound from heaven, release the four angels, actually fallen angels or demons, who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Even in the last days, diabolical devils will become a violent, lethal threat to mankind and they are currently being kept at the mouth of the Euphrates. Verse 6 fast-forwards many days. Jeremiah writes, Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash. And you can imagine what condition it was in after being in the ground for that length of time. It was ruined. It was profitable for nothing. A fragile linen cloth had been buried in the mud for weeks, the stains were now ingrained. It was worse than red clay on the pair of a toddler's trousers. The sash was molded. It was mildewed. A garment that had once adorned the priest was now profitable for nothing. And then verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, the evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts, and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. The whole exercise was a, a metaphor for God's people. It was to teach them spiritual lessons. He says, for as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. See, the priest had worn the sash around his waist. It covered the seat of his emotions, his gut reactions, his bowels of mercy. And likewise, God had tender feelings for the nation Judah. Thus, this, sap, this sash represented his feelings. You see, Jeremiah says that God's desire for his people were for, notice this, for renown, for praise, for glory. Boy, did you know that that's God's desire for us? For renown, for praise, for glory. His goal was to lavish on the Jews and on us such blessing that the world will look on and know that our God is the one true God. But because of their pride, they refused to submit to God. They followed other gods, idols that catered to their carnality and that justified their sinful desires. And as a result, their hearts got old, their minds grew mold. To God, they were like that worthless sash. Here's the question for us. Do we have an intimacy with God? Do we have a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with God? 
Or has pride crowded God out of our lives? Have idols, have other concerns more pressing than God taken precedent in our hearts and in our minds? If so, to God, we have become like a rotten sash. We're no longer profitable. This was his lesson to the nation Judah. Verse 12, Therefore you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Now this was a proverbial expression, which meant it'll all turn out well in the end. Every bottle will be filled with wine. And this is what the false prophets were saying. The truth is, is that this is not going to turn out well for them. Jeremiah's already prophesied that judgment is coming. God is not going to fill them with joy, but with drunkenness. He's going to bring on them a spiritual stupor. For he says, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, with drunkenness, and I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. God will judge the kings and the princes and the priests and the prophets, even the people of Judah. These are ominous words here. God is saying, I will have no mercy on these people. I've warned them and warned them and they've turned a deaf ear and now their judgment will come. He says, hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, He turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. God promises darkness to cover the Jews. They have rejected His light, so He sentences them to dense darkness. There are three types of darkness spoken of in Scripture. First is a natural darkness. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 describes an inherent darkness that comes from not knowing Christ. We're born into this kind of darkness. You remember Ephesians tells us, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. All men are born in sin and therefore apart from God. Thus, we are in the dark from the start until God shines His light into our lives. Second, though, is a deliberate darkness. In John 3, verse 19, Jesus said, The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And this is a darkness that men choose. You see, the light of God exposes our sin. It makes us uncomfortable. And thus, sinful men at times prefer the darkness rather than the light. There's a natural darkness, there's a deliberate darkness, and then third, there is a judicial darkness. This is the darkness referred to here in Jeremiah, that God sentences a rebellious people to stumble into their own spiritual darkness. They've rejected the light, and thus God enacts a spiritual darkness upon them as a form of judgment. You know, this is what's going to happen in the end times, during the Great Tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us, For this reason God will send them strong delusion, 
that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When people choose darkness rather than light, often God imposes a darkness as a form of judgment. And that's what we find here in Jeremiah. Verse 17. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. And here the weeping prophet is at it again. He weeps over the harm that's been caused by their pride. You realize pride is the heart of all our problems. Hope you know that. Pride is the root of all our sin. It's even evident in its spelling. At the center of the word sin is what letter? It's I. Jeremiah weeps over the pride of his people. It's their pride that's caused this judgment. He says, say to the king and to the queen mother, humble yourselves, sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. Most commentators believe that the king here is Jehoiakim and his mother Nehushta. You can read about them in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 8 through 16. You can go back and read that history. Jehoiakim reigned for just three months before he and the royal family were taken prisoner and were carted off to Babylon. Verse 19, the cities of the south shall be shut up and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. And King Jehoiakim's deportation was just the beginning. Eventually, all of the Jews will be taken back to Babylon. They'll be sentenced to exile for 70 years. The final blow came in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians burned the temple and took the Jewish captives back to Babylon. He says, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? What will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. In other words, you brought these problems on yourself. Your suffering is the result of your own sin, which is often our case as well. He says, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north, that is, the Babylonian invaders. And then verse 23 is a famous passage. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopards its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. So here's the question. Can an Ethiopian change his skin color? Of course, the answer to that is no. Here's another question. Can a leopard change his spots? Again, it's no. Both the skin and the spots are permanent. And thus the question follows. Can a man do good who is accustomed to doing evil? And again, the answer is no. An Ethiopian can't change his skin. A leopard can't change his spot. And you and I can't change our nature. We are born into sin. We are sinners at heart. In chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah will go as far as to say, the heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately wicked. A better translation is incurably wicked. I mean, there's nothing that I can do or you can do to change yourself. Oh, we can reform our actions for a time. We can change the outer man, but we can't change our nature. This is why we need a new nature. This is why we need a new heart. This is why Jesus said, you must be born again. What we need is the miracle of the new birth. We can change, but it takes God's Spirit alive in us to change us. He is the one who cuts out our rebellious heart and gives us a compliant heart, an obedient heart. As Jesus himself said to Nicodemus in John 3 verse 7, you must be born again. We're reborn spiritually by God's Spirit. He says, therefore, I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore, I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. And this is how they would shame a prostitute in those days. They would pull up her skirt over her face. And Jeremiah is saying that God is about to expose the harlotry of his people. That Judah and Jerusalem has betrayed the Lord. In essence, has slept with idols. And thus God is going to judge them and expose their sin. Verse 27, he says, I have seen your adulteries and your lustful names. The lewdness of your harlotry, your abomination on the hills in the fields. Like an animal in heat, the people of Judah had pursued lewd and lustful desires. They'd worshipped fertility gods and goddesses. The pagans who had sanctioned immorality and prostitution. And as a result, God warns his people, Woe to you, O Jerusalem, will you still not be made clean. Chapter 14 begins a new section. He says, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Now now realize, in both Mesopotamia and in Egypt, Abraham and his descendants, the Hebrews, they lived in a land that was fed by great rivers. While they were in Egypt, the Nile, of course, supplied the land with water. When they were east in Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldees, The land was fed by the Euphrates. But when God brought the Hebrew people into the land that he had promised them, he knew that they would have to rely on him for water. Canaan didn't have a big river. If you've ever been with us to Israel, you've seen how slender and small the little Jordan is. It's really just kind of a creek in places. Canaan relied on the rains. The Bible refers to the former and the latter rains, or the spring and the fall rains. When the people obeyed God, he saw to it that it rained. When they disobeyed, God closed up the heavens. The Lord used drought conditions to get his people's attention and to humble them and bring them back to himself. I read somewhere that the Bible speaks of 13 famines, and all of them were the result of God's judgment. The drought spoken of here is no exception. He goes on and he talks about the conditions. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and 
confounded and covered their heads. By the way, the cisterns aren't the opposite of the brethren. You know that, don't you? The cisterns were carved out holes in the rock. They were water reservoirs. He says, because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land, the plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. If you go to, with us to Israel again, you see how that uh, it, would, it doesn't take much, much drought to cause the land to completely dry up where there is no grass. I've been in the spring of the year and I've been in the fall of the year. And when you go in the fall of the year, things are so barren, you think, you know, there'd never be grass. And then you go in the spring of the year, there is a little patches of grass here and there. And so there's places where, where you, you realize just how tenuous it is. That if the water was withheld just for a short period of time, things would dry up instantly. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about. How that this drought has caused the jackal and the animals to look for food and yet find none. And it was all the result of what? It was all the result of their backslidings. He says, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. And notice it wasn't just one backsliding. No, no. He admits our backslidings are many, he says. In other words, they were living in a backslidden state. You know, it's, it's not just one time or one slip up, one sin against God, one time of drifting away. But it's when we live in a perpetual state. It's when that becomes the condition of our heart and there is no repentance. Here's where we're vulnerable to the judgment of God. They were living in a backslidden state. And here Jeremiah intercedes for his people, God's people. And I like how he does it. Notice the pronoun that he uses here. He doesn't say their backslidings. Notice that. He says our backslidings. It's not they. It's we. Jeremiah loves the Jews. He sees himself as one of them. The prophet stays loyal to his people and he identifies with them through thick and thin. Through good or bad. You see, as Jesus did in an ultimate sense, Jeremiah does in a lesser one. He bears the burden of the sins of the people. And then he says in verse 8, Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Here in a very bleak, dark time, Jeremiah gives a wonderful name for God. He calls him the hope of Israel. Isn't that a beautiful name? God is the hope of Israel, and He's our hope as well. God is our Savior in times of trouble. This is why He says, don't be like a stranger to Him. Be His friend. Let God be your friend. He says, why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord to this people, Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now. 
and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for this people for their good. This is ominous. When God tells his prophet not to pray for his people, not to pray at least for a pleasant outcome. In other words, God is saying their judgment is fixed, Jeremiah. Don't pray for for me to uh, deliver them. Their judgment is fixed. The die has been cast. They have sinned before me. And I have decided what to do. The word to them is to prepare. The word to them is not, um, it's not to, don't pray for their, for their relief. He says, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. As we've noted before, God's patience has its limits. God will not wait on us forever. The door of opportunity eventually slams shut. This is the problem with perpetual backslidings. You know, you get to a point where God realizes the only way to wake this person up is through a bit of judgment. It's through tough times, and so he allows that in the person's life. And there comes a point where you can pray for deliverance, but the die has been cast. God knows what it'll take, as he does with the people here. And then verse 13, he says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Realize, Jeremiah was not the only man claiming to speak for God during this time. There were false prophets who were preaching the exact opposite message. Jeremiah is preaching, Judgment is coming. The false prophets are crying out, Oh, peace and safety. And I'm sure there were moments of self-doubt when Jeremiah kind of wondered, you know, have we crossed wires here? Am I hearing from God correctly? I mean, who's right in all this? Well, the Lord comes to assure him. And the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing. And the deceit of their heart. Beware. Not everybody who comes in the name of God and says they're speaking for God is actually doing so. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them, them nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Boy, how's that for a validation of Jeremiah's message? God says, you're the one who's, who's hearing right, Jeremiah. And I wish that lying prophets with this smooth and easy message were just a problem of the past. But I don't think so. Sadly, they still plague us today. Listen to this little excerpt I ran across. Noah's message from the steps going up to the ark was not your best life now. Amos was not confronted by the high priest of Israel for writing a book entitled, Something Good is Going to Happen to You. Jeremiah was not put into the pit for preaching, I'm okay, you're okay. 
Daniel was not put into the lion's den for telling people possibility thinking will move mountains. John the Baptist was not beheaded because he preached, smile, God loves you. The two prophets of the tribulation will not be killed for preaching, become a better you or get your hopes up. Instead, the message all of these men of God preached was one word, repent. Oh, how we need men today who will stand up and speak the truth. Verse 17, Therefore you shall say this word to them, Let my eyes flow with tears day and night, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. Again, the weeping prophet. He, he speaks of these judgments, but not without a tear in his eye. Not without a break in his heart. For he does represent God. And he knows that God is heartbroken over what is about to come upon his people. I had a man once tell me that when he converted to Christ... God gave him, and I quote, the gift of tears. I thought that was interesting, the gift of tears. I asked him about it. He said that he'd lived a rough life, that his conscience had been seared, that along the way, this fellow had become so callous that he had lost his ability to cry. But when the Lord touched him, softened his heart, he resensitized his conscience and gave him back his tears was one of the greatest treasures, one of the greatest blessings he'd received. Billy Graham once said, Tears shed for self are tears of weakness, but tears shed for others are a sign of strength. And this was true of Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet for the tears that he shed over the nation. Someone once observed, More tears are shed in our movie theaters over make-believe tragedies than in our churches over real ones. I'm afraid that's sad but true. When was the last time you and I actually shed a tear over someone that we loved who didn't know Christ, over the pain and the loss, lostness of the people around us? Oh, we're eager to get on our vindictive, you know, soapbox. How many of us shed a tear and actually weep over the people? And how far they've fallen short of God's glory. Verse 18 tells us, If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick with famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. Jeremiah is saying, The land that is bears no resemblance to the ravaged land that will be. God is going to bring judgment. And then Jeremiah asks the Lord, have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? He's got questions about all this and he's asked God. We looked for peace but there was no good and for the time of healing and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Now you see, Jeremiah has forgotten that the curses 
were as much a part of God's covenant with Moses and with Israel as were his blessings. You remember at the end of the law, we have a series of blessings and curses. And God had made it clear to his people that if you obey my word, I'm going to bless you. But he also made equally clear that if you disobey my law, these curses are going to come upon you. And in judging them here, God is saying to Jeremiah, all I'm doing is fulfilling the promises that I made to my people years ago. The curses were just as much fulfilled promises as blessings would have been had the people obeyed. He says, are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you since you have made all these. And the chapter ends as it begins, sort of focused on the drought. And Jeremiah concludes, only God can bring the rain. Jeremiah has asked. Now he waits for God to prove himself again. But God answers Jeremiah in a surprising way in chapter 15. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Now these are, these are strong words. Moses, Samuel. These were known in Jewish history as powerful intercessors. On numerous occasions, both Moses and Samuel went to bat for the people in prayer. God heard these men. He delivered his people because of their intercessory prayers. Go back and read Exodus 32, Numbers 14, 1 Samuel 7 and 12. In fact, Psalm 99 verse 6 declared, Moses and Aaron were among the priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. Even the psalmist recognized that Moses and Samuel were great intercessors. If there had been one, Moses and Samuel would have had a spot in the intercessors' hall of fame. Yet here, even if effective, proven intercessors like Moses and Samuel were around to pray for the Jews in Jeremiah's day, nothing would be done. Their prayers would be ineffectual. The nation had gone too far, and God said he would not answer their prayers. Again, Judah had pushed God too far. The judgment was determined, and prayer would not alter God's will. There are times when prayer does alter God's will. There are other prayers when God's will is set in stone. And all of our praying and pleading won't do any good. The problem is we don't know unless God tells us. And thus we should pray. But here God tells Jeremiah that his prayers are to no avail. You know, this passage proves a couple of truths. First, that no one can repent on behalf of another. It's up to each one of us to come before God. Jeremiah wanted to pray and intercede for the people, but it was up to the people to turn and repent. And then second, as the Lord had said just before the flood, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, He said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. You see, this teaches us that God's patience does have limits. Oh, His love is eternal, but His patience has limits. 
We can push God and push God and push God. And God is so merciful that he will forgive us. He gives us second chances, no doubt about it. But nowhere does the Bible say that patience is limitless. No, it does have limits. His spirit will not always strive with man. And there comes a day when God says that's enough. Verse 2 tells us, And it shall be if they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord, Such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. That's not a very comforting answer. In other words, their fate has already been decided. They have nowhere to go but to receive their reward. they got four choices, and none of them are very appealing. He says, and I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. At the time, everyone is destined for judgment. There are four ways they can die. Take your pick. But trust me, none of them are very appealing. It's interesting that all of a sudden here, out of nowhere it seems, that God brings up Manasseh. It goes all the way back to the reign of this king Manasseh as a reason for the nation's judgment. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 9 tells us, Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. This is ironic. Manasseh brought more and worse idolatry into Israel than had been there under the Canaanites who God drove out of the land to make room for the Hebrews. Manasseh had been involved in idolatry, in the occult, in witchcraft, in astrology. Manasseh had burned babies to Molech. He had even set up an idol to a fertility goddess right there in the heart of the temple. And you see, if God didn't judge Judah on account of Manasseh's sin, he would need to apologize to the Canaanites that the Hebrews had driven out of the land when they came in under Joshua. At the time of Manasseh, God prophesied that he would wipe Judah clean like a man wipes a dirty plate. Manasseh reigned 52 years, and though he would later repent in his life, he couldn't undo the damage that he did. It's interesting, this brings up another point. Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, was told by God that he was about to die. You remember Hezekiah, he was a good king. And he was told by God that he was about to die. One day God said to him, hey, make sure your will's in order, buy you a new suit, make some arrangements for the funeral, check in with the funeral home, man, you're, you're going to die. That's what God told him. But then Hezekiah prayed. And this was one of those times when apparently his prayers were effectual. He could change God's mind and God's plan. And so he asked God for an extension. God granted Hezekiah 15 additional years at his own request. And yet it was during that stoppage time that guess who was born? Manasseh. The reason that the nation sunk into such deep idolatry. You know, you hate to kind of play the what-if game. 
but what if Hezekiah had been content with God's will? Had just said, Father knows best. And accepted his plight. Manasseh would have never been born. Perhaps Judah would have lasted a few centuries longer. Who knows? The moral of the story is, God knows best. Well, he goes on and he says, For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. Again, they're backslidings. Hey, the Christian life is like running up a sliding board in your socks. You ever tried that when you were a little kid? You ever run up a sliding board in your socks? Well, you're doing fine as long as you're going up, aren't you? It's when you stop that you start sliding back down. Life is full of splinters, but you never find them until you slide back down. That's why we need to keep pressing forward. God says, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. God was getting tired of saying of staying his judgments and stopping his judgments for nothing but hollow and meaningless promises. You know, and this is true in, in individual lives. People pray, oh, Lord, I'll do better. I'll change. I'll change. And they think they, they, they've all, there's always hope. Man, there comes a time when God says no. There comes a time when God turns us over to judgment. He knows that's the only way to get our attention. It says in verse 7, And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. God says, I'm going to thresh them like wheat and sort them out and humble them. And you need to realize how hard it was for God to say these words. I will destroy my people. Realize how hard that was for God to say. These were people he loved. These were people he delivered time and time again. These were people he pleaded with and cared for and would eventually die for. He loved these people. Don't don't just glibly read over those words as if God is some harsh, cruel God. No, it was difficult for God to say these words. It broke his heart to say these words. And yet their sin drove him to say them. I will destroy my people. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sands of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young man, a plunderer at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. In the Jewish mentality, to kill a man was to kill a nation. Since in ending a man's life, you were eliminating his potential progenity. And and thus, this is how he accounts for widows more than the sands of the seas. He says, she languishes who has born seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down. While it was yet day, she has been ashamed and confounded. And the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. Seven was the number of perfection, and thus seven children was said to constitute the perfect family. I don't know, I never got that far. Stopped at four. I always thought four was the perfect family. People ask me to describe my kids. I said, well, the oldest, he's kind of like the quarterback, and... Then the second one, she was the cheerleader. She had all the 
spunk and all. And the third one, he was kind of like the running back. And they said, well, what's the fourth one? I said, he was the end. Just throwing out a little joke there. But seven children was supposed to be the perfect family. And thus this woman should have been content. But here she languishes because of the judgment that's to come. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. Now, now this is breaking Jeremiah's heart as well. I mean, Jeremiah's gotten very discouraged by all this to the point to where he's regretting the fact that he was even born. Woe is my mother who born me. I'm a man of strife. I'm a man of contention. I have nothing good to bring the people. You know, it's interesting. All Jeremiah ever wanted to do was serve the Lord. And yet he was called on to preach a hard message. And princes and prophets and even priests fought against him and persecuted him. You remember earlier, even people from his own hometown, Anathoth, had plotted his assassination. And here he's just grieving over this, this plight that he's been given. He even says, I have neither lent for interest, nor have men lent to me for interest. Yet every one of them curses me. This is actually kind of humorous. You know, he says, when it comes to loaning money to a friend, it's problematic for both the borrower and the lender. If the borrower misses a payment, he upsets his lender friend. If the lender has to call in the loan, he angers his borrower friend. I've heard it said, before borrowing money from a friend, decide which one you need more, the money or the friend. It's true. Personal loans create all kinds of tension. And yet here Jeremiah is saying, I haven't loaned any money. I haven't borrowed any money. And yet still everybody despises me. What's with that? He's saying, I have no friends. Everyone is my enemy. He's just moaning his, his situation. Verse 11. The Lord said, Surely it would be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you in the time of adversity and in the time of affliction. Here the Lord does throw Jeremiah some comfort. First he tells him that God will watch over the survivors of the invasion. A remnant of Jews will be taken into captivity. And then second, God says that he'll see to it that the Babylonians are kind and caring in their personal treatment of Jeremiah. He says, it's going to be hard on the nation, but Jeremiah, I'm going to take care of you. Can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? The northern iron, iron that came from up around the Black Sea, was particularly hard and durable. And just as iron could not be broken, neither could the Babylonian army. Their troops here are the northern iron. He says, your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories. And I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know. For a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. Now you remember when Abraham's family came from Ur of the Chaldees and came around into the land of Canaan. They crossed over the Euphrates River. God promised them a great land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they were given a name. They were called Hebrews, which means crossing over. 
they crossed over the Euphrates into the land of Canaan. But now, sadly, they're crossing back. They've worshipped the idols of Babylon, and now God has given them a taste of of living in the land of those idols. They're crossing back. They've come full circle. Because of their sin, God is sending them back to the idolatrous land from which they had escaped. It's kind of sad when you find yourself right back into the situation that you'd once escaped. Jeremiah prays, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me, and take vengeance for me, O my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. See, not all Jeremiah's concern was for the people. He also cared about his own plight. He didn't want to be taken into captivity. And here he's hoping that God is going to spare him on account of his faithfulness. Jeremiah's asking, Lord, take vengeance on my enemies, but please show mercy toward me. In verse 16, Jeremiah recalls the moment that changed his life. He says, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Remember, it was during the evil reign of Manasseh that the word of God, that is the law of Moses, had been lost. And it wasn't until 20 years after Manasseh's death that a copy of the scriptures was rediscovered in the temple. It was found by the high priest Hilkiah, who by the way may have been Jeremiah's dad. Thus Jeremiah got to read that scroll. And from the moment that scroll was found, Jeremiah read it, he studied it, he devoured it, he ate it, he said. He digested its every word. He chewed on the word and mulled over it and devoured it. The Bible became his bread, his food. God's truth fed his soul. The scriptures created in Jeremiah a joy and rejoicing. I hope it's created that in your heart as well. I hope you have found a source of sustenance and strength in the word of God. It's been said, when a hungry spirit feeds on Holy Scripture, a sweetness fills the soul. Indeed it does. You know, when you read your Bible, think about it. When you read your Bible, you see across time into eternity. When you read your Bible, you eavesdrop in on the thoughts of God. Your attention gets snatched from the things on earth and gets focused on things in heaven. When a hungry heart reads the Bible, God's presence rises from the sacred page. And yet Jeremiah had not only read God's word, but he'd put it into practice. He had followed its precepts. Even though it alienated him from others and made his way more difficult, he still obeyed. Notice verse 17. He says, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand. For you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? You see, in seeking to serve the Lord, Jeremiah's ministry didn't turn out the way he'd hoped. Pain and hurt and wounds. That wasn't on the recruitment poster when he signed up. 
It's not what the prophet Jeremiah expected. And you know, to a small degree, I can relate to Jeremiah's angst. Holiness is not always hassle-free. There is no such thing as no-mess ministry. Jeremiah made the mistake of adopting expectations for his ministry that God never signed off on. He made assumptions that were not of God. His disappointment wasn't due to God's failure, but to his own faulty expectations. But look at who he blames. He refers to God as an unreliable strength. God, you haven't been faithful to me. I got to tell you, I've been there, done that. It's happened to me. I'll never forget when we first got started, I assumed that our church was going to grow quickly and exponentially. I can actually remember telling Kathy, I said, Kathy, I'm going to give it about nine months, and I think we'll have about 1,500 people. Never forget saying that. Boy, was I wrong. I had some self-inflated visions of grandeur, and I had to learn to calibrate my expectations to God's plan for me. I'm just a foot soldier. God is the general who calls the orders. I remember a really dark time when I was so bummed out. <laughs> Gosh, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to, to admit it. But like Jeremiah, I came close to calling the God of all faithfulness an unreliable strength. You see, what Jeremiah is thinking of here is a drainage ditch, sort of a water runoff. It fills up in the springtime. But then it's bone dry in the hot summer when you really need some water. You can't count on it. It can't be trusted. You look to it and it lets you down. You know, imagine rather than blame me, rather than blame my methods, rather than blame my flawed expectations, that I came close to blaming the God of all faithfulness, accusing Him of being an unreliable stream. This is what Jeremiah was doing. Hey, God can be trusted. He is good every day, all the time. It's us who misplace expectations and misplace our priorities and forget who God truly is. Over the years, thankfully, I've learned what the psalmist ordered of himself in Psalm 62, verse 5. He said, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. And this is, should, be our, should, be, should be all of our posture. We should wait silently on God. Our expectation should be His will for our lives, not our own dreams and visions. My will is not always God's will. My plans and my time don't always sync up with His plans and His time. Always remember true faith is not in the outcome that you expect, but it's in the person of God. Who does all things well in his own time. Verse 19 tells us, Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return to me, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vile, you shall be as my mouth. God's response was such a shock to Jeremiah. What God tells him here was also so unexpected. Jeremiah has accused God of moving, of abandoning him, of being an unreliable stream. Whereas God tells Jeremiah, he's the one who's moved and needs to repent. It's like praying, God, where are you? And God replying, I'm right where I've always been. Where are you? 
It's like the old saying, if you feel distant from God, you're the one who's moved, not him. Remember, Jeremiah was a priest. He was a pastor, you could say. And yet God tells him that he needs to return to him. And this, this means, notice, this means that you can drift from the Lord even while serving the Lord. I can hear Jeremiah now, man, I'm at the church seven days a week. What do you mean return to you? And yet he had drifted in his heart. You can backslide from God even in the midst of serving God. This is the occupation, occupational hazard of the ministry. They don't teach it at Bible college. That your heart can drift from God even when you're up to your eyeballs serving Him. You start to take shortcuts. The ends becomes more important than the means. The deed becomes more important than the motive. And some of us in ministry need to humble our hearts and return to God. He says, if you return, then I will bring you back. You know, another occupational hazard in the ministry is the ease by which a motive can become muddied. It can become polluted. In the heat of the battle, motives get contaminated. All it takes is a few disappointments, and our attitude can sour. You know, pastors particularly can develop an entitlement mentality. We think that the people, even God, owes us. The more I hurt, trying to help people, you know, the more that my heart can grow hard. The polluting of a motive is such a subtle occurrence. Think about it. When does righteous anger become vindictiveness? When does strong leadership turn into manipulation? When does admiration for another man's ministry become jealousy? When does encouragement morph into manipulation? When does the vision for the future turn into an ingratitude for the past? These are all fine lines, but oh, God lets us know when we've crossed them. There was much in Jeremiah that was still precious, God says. His desire to serve, his compassion, his courage. But Jeremiah was a mixed bag. There was also some vile, some anger and bitterness and doubt. And Jeremiah's a lot like you and me. There's much in you that's precious to God, but there's also some vile. And God wants us to continue to be His mouthpiece. Thus, we have to take out the precious from the vile. A constant sifting needs to be going on in our hearts at all times. This is true repentance. Lord, take out the vile. Lord, purify my heart. And then God tells in verse 19, Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. God doesn't want Jeremiah to become too attached to these people. Jeremiah is a tender man. And thus his tenderness could hinder his ability to speak the truth. <clears throat> you know, how often has a bleeding heart tried to lure the bar so that half-heartedness can crawl over? This is the kind of, not the kind of compassion that God wants. Yes, Jeremiah needs to love these people, but not at the expense of God's truth. Hebrews 2 verse 17 describes Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest. Notice that. He was both merciful and faithful. Churches today that set aside God's righteousness in order to relate to people's sensibilities, they take the side of mercy. But what about faithfulness? Other churches side with the truth, but they show no mercy. 
God is pleased with neither approach. He wants us to be both merciful and faithful. We need to love people, but we need to speak the truth. And this is why God says, let them return to you, but you must not return to them. Jeremiah needs to hold the high ground, even if it, he isn't seeing any results. The church doesn't need to compromise to the crowd. You know, the world has never been attracted to a Christianity that's hazy about what it believes or that compromises what it believes. Men are drawn to the Savior when our faith is serious and heartfelt. And if Jeremiah is going to hold the high ground, he needs to bulk up. He needs to add some toughness to his tears. There was a song going around Jerusalem at the time. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Maybe you heard it. But God says, no, I want to make you a bulldog. I want to give you some tenacity, some toughness. This is why God tells him in verse 20, I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. God is going to build up Jeremiah. He's going to strengthen his faith. A city surrounded by a fortified bronze wall would be invincible. Walls made of brass would be too strong to ram too heat-resistant to burn, too slick to climb. Now that God has corrected and strengthened Jeremiah, he recommissions in verse 20. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. What a promise. Deliverance from the grip of the terrible. I, I don't know... What terrible icy fingers hold you in its grip tonight, but the Lord promises to deliver you from them. If you come back, and if you let him make you strong.